0: Good evening. My name is Sanjeev Arora, and I'm the chairman of the Public Lectures Committee at the University. Tonight's lecturer is Mark Jurgensmeyer, and the lecture is uh, sponsored jointly by the Public Lectures Committee and the Princeton University Press. Uh, The Press and the Public Lectures Committee once in a while uh, collaborate to bring in um, lecturers for a series of three lectures, and then uh, usually they're expected to produce a book based upon those lectures. So uh, I hope you'll uh, take the chance to come to lectures tomorrow and the day after. And maybe if you're uh, further interested, you'll, be, you'll get a chance to read the book that will hopefully come out of this. Uh, tonight's lecture is uh, funded by the Stafford Little Fund at the University, which was established in 1899 with a gift of $10,000 by. Henry Stafford Little of the class of 1844, who was a devoted Princetonian, and uh, according to Dean Andrew West, Princeton took the place of the wife, home, and children that he never had. Um, So uh, we're grateful uh, that somebody had the foresight to uh, set up this fund uh, 106 years ago, and uh, uh, previous lectures have included um, Albert Einstein, Theodore Roosevelt, Arnold Schoenberg, and Thurgood Marshall. Uh, uh, Professor Jurgensmeyer will be introduced by Professor Eric Gregory of the Princeton University. Uh, Professor Gregory joined the Princeton faculty in 2001. His teaching and research interests include religious and philosophical ethics, theology, political theory, and the role of religion in public life. A graduate of Harvard College, he did graduate studies in theology as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford and received his doctorate in religious studies from Yale, and he's completing a book, titled, Politics and the Order of Love, and Augustinian Ethic of Democratic Citizenship. Please welcome Professor Gregory.
1: Uh, public lectures put two demands on those of us who give introductions. We're supposed to talk about the importance of the topic and the relevance of the speaker for addressing it. Ideally, we do it very quickly. Tonight my burden is light. Uh, The topic, God and War, might sound like it's out of the 16th century, an academic lecture appropriate for a History Department graduate seminar, but we know differently all too well. Our speaker does. He's seen that religion matters for a long time. Mark Jurgensmeyer is Director of Global and International Studies and Professor of Sociology and religious studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's an expert on religious violence, conflict resolution, and South Asian religion and politics. He's published more than 200 articles in a dozen books. His widely read, Terror in the Mind of God, The Global Rise of Religious Violence, is based on interviews with violent religious activists around the world, including individuals convicted of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing leaders of Hamas, Sikh separatists, and abortion clinic bombers in the United States. It was listed by the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times as one of the best nonfiction books of the year. A previous book, The New Cold War, Religious Nationalism Confronts the Secular State, covers the rise of religious activism and its confrontation with secular modernity. Since 9-11, he has been a frequent commentator in the news media, including CNN, NBC, CBS, BBC, NPR, Fox News, and to the envy of religious studies professors everywhere, The Dennis Miller Show. His series of Princeton lectures will address the following question, or series of questions. What purpose does the concept of war serve in times of social chaos and uncertainty? What is the relationship between violence and religion? How can the global ter- war on terror be contained? Or how can global terror war be contained? The title of tonight's first lecture is The Odd Appeal of War. Please join me in welcoming Professor Jürgen Smeyer.
2: Thank you very much for that gracious introduction. Uh, Could I ask the people back there in the booth if the uh, the monitor that's supposed to come up on the screen could appear on the screen, the way we did when we worked this out? Touch it. Oh, you touch it. Oh, well, that's what I didn't figure out. (laughs) Well, being from California, I should know about being touchy-feely, but I guess I wasn't. Just wasn't touchy feely enough. But you can bring down the lights. <clears throat> this is a series of lectures on um, God and war. The first lecture is on the odd appeal of war. A little over a year and a half ago, I was in Baghdad where I talked with a mullah from the Fallujah area who told me this, he said, is war. Now, what he had in mind was not so much the initial invasion and occupation of the United States uh, Army in his country, but rather the resistance struggle that developed in the Arab-Sunni regions and throughout Iraq almost a year later. In a curious way, the full force of the American occupation and the war had come to him somewhat later, after the fall of Saddam's regime and after the event that many who supported the military coalition called the liberation of the country and many others described as the beginning of occupation. It is a remarkable idea, war. War. It came over a rock like a cloud that poisoned the process of a peaceful transition to a democratic state. It descended into the thinking and attitudes of Iraqis months after the end of the initial assault, after the battle of the invasions were over and after the Americans had congratulated themselves on a job well done. Gradually, the idea insinuated itself into the minds of many average Iraqis who began to see the American-led coalition forces as more than just an irritating, occupying, occupying presence. They began to see them as enemies in a global war. Yet, in some ways, this image of warfare in Iraq was a mere response to the fervor of patriotic militancy that brought the U.S. troops to Iraq in the first place. Many of the young men and women who volunteered to fight in Iraq had in their minds a mood of revenge, of wanting to retaliate against those who attacked the World Trade Center on 9-11. So no matter that Saddam had nothing to do with al-Qaeda or 9-11, in their minds... They were repaying the Middle East for the suffering it had brought to Americans. In a curious way, they were replicating the thinking of those Muslim militants who plotted the terrorist attacks in the first place and, in their minds, were attempting to repay the U.S. for the suffering that they imagined it had brought to the lives of those who had lived in that troubled region. So the wheel of warfare had, in a curious way, come full circle. How did this come to pass? Why did this way of thinking about the world, a world embroidered in war, seem on both sides of the conflict to be so natural, so inevitable, so appealing? This is a series of lectures about war. It's about the mindset of warfare, the appeal of war, and why it is so closely tied to the religious imagination. Now, one of the first points I want to make is that what I'm talking about is war, the idea of war, the notion of war, the mindset of war, and not military force. It may not seem obvious to you, but I'm less interested in the actual use of lethal weapons and in the world view that makes that usage possible. I know that much has been written about the strategic decisions that go into war, about the cold calculations to gain economic benefits or political leverage at the cost of soldiers' lives, about the political and moral justifications that allow for armed force in response to perceived threats. And these are all important issues, but that's not what I want to focus on. What I want to focus on is what makes these political calculations possible. And that is the public acceptance, the natural human intuition, that there is such a thing as war. The notion that in some situations of social tension, that war makes sense. It's this idea of war, this totalizing construct of the human imagination that absolutizes one view of the world. That's what I want to explore. It seems to me that the idea of war and actions of military force, even though we usually think of them as being together, do not necessarily go together. I know that sometimes war is defined by political scientists in terms of political calculations. Kenneth Walsh speaks of it as the calculation of international politics. The 19th century theorist Carl van Clausewitz talked about war as the continuation of political activity by other means, what they're talking about is the use of military force, but not war. It's, there's no question that military action is often a part of the calculation of political uh, international politics, but if this is all that war is, then every instance of war would have to demonstrate that the benefits exceeded their costs, that at least those who involved in the decision to go over the war expected this to be the case. But, as we know, it doesn't always happen that way. Let's take, for example, the Vietnam War. When JFK and his band of the best and brightest, as Haberstam called them in the White House at the time, decided that it was a good idea for military action in Vietnam, what they had in mind was a calculated political maneuver that they thought would help to turn the tide of the expansion of communism and make a difference in the world. What they didn't expect was that the idea of a world of war would take force, would take root in such in a deep and intractable way in the American public mind that those policies would not be easy. shift, because in order to sell the American people on the idea of war, it couldn't be simply a political calculation. It had to be posed in terms of a great moral conflict, conflict, a great confrontation between forces of good and evil from which there was no easy extrication. So later in the engagement, when the American public had accepted that idea and the mentality of war had seized their imagination, One presidential administration after the other found itself with an impossible situation. They couldn't win, but they couldn't accept losing. The momentum of war had overcome their political expectations. The best they could expect was peace with honor, which is a kind of euphemism for withdrawal disguised as victory. Something had happened after that initial political calculation. The idea of war had descended into the public consciousness, a mindset from which there was no easy retreat. It's this mentality that I'm thinking about when I talk about war, the idea of war, the world war worldview, and it's not a rational thing. Though the conduct of military operations certainly involves a great deal of skill and rational calculation, it seems to me that war, the idea of absolute conflict that precedes many but not all military acts, is almost an instinctual thing it 's almost a reflex. It has to do with more to do with emotions, kind of subconscious response than with conscious reason. This is what I mean by the war mentality, the war way of thinking. About things. The etymology of the English word war suggests such an interpretation. It comes from the old English term werra, W-E-R-R-A, which means confusion or chaos. It's probably related to the old Saxon word, meaning to bring into confusion. So hence, war is a way of imagining confusion of chaos and making sense of it. This means that war is first and foremost an idea. It is war in the mind long before it is war in the finger finger on the trigger of a gun. The war implies the threat of violence and justifies the use of it, it does not require it. A society can be gripped with a mindset of war even when no military action is undertaken. One can have a warring attitude without ever fighting a shot. Now, we've just recovered from some 40 years of warfare in the Cold War, which from time to time did erupt into tragically violent moments in Cuba and Korea and Vietnam. Over 60,000 Americans, maybe 3 million, 2 million Vietnamese were killed. But the overarching concept of war in the Cold War was greater than any of these specific military conflicts. And the key opponents, Moscow and Washington, though targeted in practice maneuvers, were never actually attacked. During the Cold War, Americans never experienced military fighting on their own territory. But they did suffer the effects of the war mentality in a variety of ways, certainly in their international perspective, the way they viewed Russia and the rest of the world, and also the way they viewed one another. The wave of anti-communism represented by the witch hunts of Senator Joe McCarthy, for example. Devastating the careers of hundreds of civil servants were, in a sense, victims. They were in a sense victims of a war that on American soil, at least, never led to bloodshed. It was a curious war. A curious war. At the same time, we can imagine military Maneuvers and military uh, attacks, the use of a military force, without being at war. The efforts of humanitarian intervention by the United Nations or NATO peacekeeping forces, for example, often, in fact, lead to confrontation. The only shots ever fired by the NATO were in in peacekeeping operations in Kosovo, by and other locations where they be sent in order to try to establish uh, a semblance of social order. We're allowed to, uh, allowed, we allow individual states to intervene if it, in other states, if it's a, in pursuit of a an offender, in hot pursuit. The, the first months of the Afghan occupation, for example, after... The American invasion in October of 2001 was regarded largely by the rest, of the, the rest of the world as a justified military assault, largely. It was only later when the American occupation stayed after a transfer of power and then with Iraq that America's purposes in that part of the world were seen in a darker, more sinister light by many parts of the rest of the world, and America was perceived as being at war. But at least initially, military force does not necessarily mean war, and war does not necessarily mean military action. So then, why and how does this irrational construct of human imagination, this idea of war, set upon human consciousness and transform one's view of the world, or put more simply, When is war, war? War is a remarkable notion, and history is full of it. Perhaps more perplexing, religion is full of it. Human creativity, in general, revels in it. It saturates the images of popular culture, the plays and movies, novels, and television stories, comic books, and computer games. There's even an Islamic computer game called Uma One, where there's a kind of apocalyptic war between believers and unbelievers. War is everywhere, and always had been. Well, in some ways, literature and the arts do a better job than we more didactic social scientists in trying to describe what war is. Perhaps there's no more eloquent statement of the shocking terror and energy of warfare than the extensive mural painted by Pablo Picasso to depict the moment in the Spanish Civil War in the town of Guernica. What Guernica says about war, in its stifled screams, its broken daggers, its trampled hooves, and its terrible illumination of light, is that war is indeed a kind of hell. It is everything that civil society is not, where normal society offers the understanding and accommodation of differences. War provides absolute enemies in either-or dichotomization. Where ordinary communities go to great measures to protect life, blood in a time of war is cheap and easily spilled. Where civil order respects law and the familiarity of routine, the theaters of war are madhouses of confusion and desperate measures aimed at sheer survival in the state of massacre. War is the very antithesis of civilization. Since most collective human endeavors are aimed at creating societies that are peaceful, orderly, and just, why should the idea of war be even remotely attractive? Since the orderly adjudication of differences is the hallmark of civil society, why would we want to imagine a situation in which... Humans are objects, and those who differ from us are aeons to be destroyed. Yet it is precisely this alternative to normal life, not just a little bit different, but it's very absolute opposite that the images of war provide. To try to understand this odd appeal of war, I want to look at several examples culled from classical and popular literature. My... Examples of the gripping war novel by Ernest Hemingway, from whom, For Whom the Bell Tolls, the classic Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, and the computer game, Counter-Strike. Within the pantheon of astoundingly popular computer games in recent years, almost all of which are set within the scenarios of warfare, Counter-Strike has been a blazing star, a supernova of stars. It was the most popular online computer game of 2005, receiving over 2 million hits on the internet, and its website proudly proclaims that Counter-Strike may be the most popular online action game of all time. Now, Counter-Strike is an interesting game. It has terrorists and counter terrorists and you can choose to be either one. It doesn't make any difference. You just simply sign up, or whatever space is available. It doesn't. Make... It's a role-playing game, unlike strategy games, which is another form of computer uh, war model. It's a role-playing game in which you are either the terrorist or the counter-state terrorist and and wage war against each other. Your enemy has no humanity or personality. The foes are simply objects to be destroyed. In Counter-Strike, there's no compromise, no negotiation. The only possibility is total annihilation, annihilation. Who would want to play such a game? To try to understand this phenomena, I turned to a group of informants. (laughs) I sought out a group of high school students from various locations in California who were attending a seminar at my university in Santa Barbara. I talked with them about what they loved about Counter-Strike, and they all loved it. They confirmed what seemed to be obvious that the clientele for the game tended to be male, almost exclusively male, middle class. People like themselves who were often hooked on the computer game during junior high school and found it appealing and enormously time consuming well into college years. My informants told me that they knew friends who played, nay, not themselves, but their friends who would play it six to eight hours a day every day of the week. What did they like about Counter-Strike? I asked them. Their answer was, "It's fun." I pressed further, especially when asked to explain why young men like themselves would choose to spend such an enormous amount of solitary time with the game to the exclusion of other forms of social interaction with family and friends, they admitted that it presented An alternative world, a clearly defined world. One with sudden and inexplicable dangers that in a certain way they could navigate through and control. There were good guys and bad guys. You knew who they were. And with any luck, the good guys would win. And if they didn't, well, there was always another game. When I tried to probe into the aggressive aspect of the game, and the young men explained, ah, they didn't really think about the enemy as another person, or even a symbol of another person, but rather as an object to be destroyed. Well then, I said, it really wouldn't make any difference then if it was just a symbol or inanimate object that was being destroyed rather than a person. Nah, they said, that wouldn't be as much fun. Grudgingly, they accepted the notion that part of the fun was vicariously doing away with other people. For the moment they were playing the game, all the complexities of civility were removed. So was the patina of propriety. For the game presented a social order of fearful chaos and surprising danger in which there were but enemies and friends, and one held only the odd chance of survival. In a curious way, the teenagers admitted the world of Counter-Strike was a deeper and more honest presentation of social reality as teenagers in California than they knew in the niceties of ordinary life. Some of the same truth about war is conveyed in Ernest Hemingway's novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls. The main character, Robert Jordan, is lured into becoming a soldier in the international cadre that was fighting against the fascist regime in the Spanish Civil War. At first, it was like, quote, taking part in a crusade, Jordan recalls, though he later thinks of his romantic enthusiasm about warfare to be, quote, as difficult and embarrassing to talk about as a religious experience, end quote. He asserts that his involvement in it was indeed authentic. You recall that much of the lure of warfare was being immersed in that total experience that gave you a part in something that you could believe in and wholly and completely. One felt an absolute brotherhood with others who were engaged in it. As the story of the novel progresses, Jordan continuously questions and reevaluates his understanding of war. And with this questioning comes a loss of innocence. In Hemingway's eyes, war is a metaphor for that rough heart of life, a terrible but honest appraisal of existence that always lies beneath the superficialities of normal social order. To think about war, according to Hemingway, is to think about The reality that we don't want to think about, the struggles for survival, the meaninglessness of high-minded virtues, the withering barrage of assaults on the self, both physical and emotional, and the futility of the struggle in the face of the ultimate victor, death. The classic Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, also finds in the images of warfare some fundamental insights about human existence. Now, the Mahabharata, along with the other great Hindu epics the Ramayana, has existed in its form that most people today know for two millennia or so. It's about the exploits, the great avatars of Vishnu, Krishna, and Rama, and they are all about war. Both the epics are about grand warfare that is often vividly portrayed in calendar art like this one. In the most gory of battles, brilliant primary colored paintings show arrows filling the air, blood spurting from wounded bodies, and severed limbs lying mangled on the ground. The god heroes are pictured spotless and gleaming carried in golden chariots to the fray. The combatants in the battles of the Mambarta are divided into the good guys and bad guys, as all battles are. Yet the struggle is not simply a Manichean one of cosmic conflict between good and evil. Because the motif that runs through these mythic scenes are the theme of us versus them, the known versus the unknown. Like battles described in the Bible and also the battles of the Ramayana, the enemies are often foreigners from the shady edges of known civilization in the Bible, places like Canaan, Philistia, and Romina, like Lanka. These foes often embody the conceptual murkiness of their origins, that is, they represent what is chaotic and uncertain in the world, including the things that defy categorization altogether. In the Mahabharata, war is waged between sets of cousins, though one is portrayed in a more honorable way than the other. But even so, the idea of chaos is embodied not so much in the inhuman evil foe as in the battle itself. It is the wickedness of warfare that the battle depicts. To fight in such a circumstance is to assent to the disorder of the world. Although the contestants knew that in a grander sense, this disorder is corrected by a cosmic order that is beyond killing and being killed. Who would want to do such a thing? This was the question that one of the fighters, Arjuna, wondered aloud. Just as he was about to go to war with his cousins, he knew that the outcome of the battle would lead to death, either his or to somebody else's. And either way, it was messy business. Why? Why? Does he have to go to war? As luck would have it, the chariot driver of Arjuna's vehicle just happened to be Lord Krishna. He heard Arjuna's plaintive of mutterings, and he gave an extensive reply. This reply, we know, is the Hindu scripture called The Song of the Auspicious One, the Bhagavad Gita. Now, there are several answers in the Bhagavad Gita that Krishna gives to Arjuna's question, why war? That's if you're cast duty, it's their soul endures, regardless of whether you're killed. But the most interesting answer is the last one, that in this life, warfare is inevitable. One cannot avoid it or escape it, as the ascetics in their mountain caves foolishly believe. Rather, to be involved in life is to be involved in battle, the messiness of life's struggle. So Lord Krishna suggests that rather than trying to avoid it, one should try to learn how to struggle in it honorably, graciously, dealing with life's battles nobly rather than, than trying to win them, since winning is in any event ultimately futile. It's this way of thinking that leads to the notion of non-attached item, action. It's the, it's the idea that Mohandas Gandhi picks up in his... Understanding of the Bhagavad Gita and develops into a whole theory of conflict resolution called Satyagraha, based on the purity of the battle itself. In each of these cases, the Bhagavad Gita teachings from the Mahabharata, Hemingway's classic novel, From Whom the Bell Tolls, the computer game Counter-Strike, What appears to be appealing about war is that it presents us with an alternative view of reality, or rather it's a reality that it seems like ours, is related to ours, and yet is so radically opposite to it. To enter into the mindset of war is to walk through Alice's looking glass into a world vastly different. The world of war, everything is upside down, chaos rather than law, death instead of life, order over disorder. Yet as starkly different as this war world is from our world, we recognize it in a haunting, fearful way. As Hemingway says, what eerily appeals to us about war is that aspect of reality that we usually do not want to confront or even admit into our consciousness. It's a world that all of us know exists on the edges of our ordered, nice, neat reality, only slightly out of range of vision, this chaos, this fighting, this warfare, this death. But it's there. It's a distant glimpse of reality that ordinarily would, we would like to pretend is beyond our imagination. When we imagine it largely because we cannot deny its powerful existence. Every day reminds us of the untidy chaos that intervenes to contradict. Justice contradict justice and law, and the inevitability that our own realities will terminate not in everlasting glory despite the hopes of the faithful, but in eternal death. War is attractive in an awful sort of way. It forces us to look at the blemish, fecal, decaying reality of life that we do not want to confront and yet do so. It is an appealing to the thing to, to think about, because it presents us with an arresting image of a reality that we feel we must somehow make sense of, one that is related but ultimately different from our own disordered lives and our own ordered lives. It presents a way of domesticating those images, transferring them from horror to a reaffirmation of life since it portrays disorder in a form that confronts it, contains it, and ultimately hopes. To destroy it. This may explain why the images of war are fascinating, and why we can't turn away from them any more than we could avoid gazing at a horrible traffic accident at the edge of the road. What it doesn't quite explain is the appeal of actually undertaking warfare, rather than simply being fascinated and confronting and being engaged in the images of it. So why do we sometimes become not just involved in the fantasy, but also engaged in the reality of war. And what I want to suggest to you tonight is that the process of thinking is strangely the same. The same factors that conduce to making war appealing to one's individual imagination are what makes war collectively appealing in dealing with a difficult social reality. In both cases, the idea of war takes root in a disturbing awareness of deep disorder, a social Anomaly. War is a way of thinking about chaos, giving it a dichotomous structured order and imagining a way in which the confusion could be made clear and demons of danger conquered. It's a way of making sense out of chaos. And the only difference between symbolic visions of war and real war is the level on which the anxiety of disorder is felt, whether it's a general fear experienced in solitude or a specific threat shared. By kindred members of a social group, externalizing this sense of threat because of a real experience of social disruption. But either way, war is a way of dealing with something that profoundly challenges the foundations of our rational existence. And this is why war, whether imagined or real, it is all on one level imagined. It is a way of thinking and living through chaos in order to become. Free from it. So what I'm suggesting is that war, or rather the process of thinking in terms of warfare, begins with fear. It starts with an attempt to make sense out of a senseless situation, something that deeply threatens our sense of order, something capable of destroying meaning itself. Or as a response to the perception of imminent danger, not just physical danger, but also an existential threat, the sense that an essential sense of identity and meaning will be destroyed. In one of my interviews for my book on terrorism with Mahmoud Lima, whom Time magazine proclaimed the mastermind of the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, although sometimes that uh, title has given to others who were associated with that act. When I interviewed Mahmoud Abulima in his prison cell in Lompoc prison, I found, interestingly, that he had not been a uh, a convinced and dedicated revolutionary all of his life. He began in Alexandria, and he was involved in the Gaba'i Islamian movement that was implicated in the killing of Sadat then he left Egypt lived in Germany for a while and in Germany he said his life began to fall apart he began to succumb to the easy the, the easy intoxication of sex and drugs and alcohol and the what he imagined to be the superficial joys of Western existence. And somehow he had lost his sense of bearing, he's lost a sense of meaning, he's lost a sense of self. And then then he discovered Islam, and particularly the jihadi form of Islam. And it came to him like an extraordinary revelation that gave suddenly personal meaning to his life. He told a parable that's common in the Middle East about a lion, the cub that was abandoned and had been raised by sheep. The sheep raised this lion cub and the lion didn't know that it was a lion. Till one day it went down to the watering hole to drink and it looked into the pond and it saw its reflection and saw that it was a lion, not a sheep. And he said to me, Mr. Mark, that's what Islam taught me, that I'm a lion, not a sheep. And it was not just Islam, but the jihadi vision of Islam, this great sense of struggle, this great sense of warfare that gave him a location and a role within it that suddenly gave meaning to his life. Abulima, in an interesting kind of way, through finding warfare, had found himself true that individuals often have a feeling of social disorder for personal reason, but in a context, a social context with others, the sense of finding oneself can be crystallized with an experience of the world at war. So war begins first with a feeling, a f- feeling of the world out of place, and what gives more of a sense of the world out of place than an Escher drawing Something's not quite right. It looks right, it seems right, and yet something's not quite right. This experience of social anomaly, of order out of place, but not just out of place, one is threatening that has the potential for destruction on both personal and existential levels. As Abolima said, this is a sense that the world was falling apart, and when an individuals feel a rising sense of social fear, the experience is compounded in their interactions with friends who help them understand this as a world at war. To see this disorder in a context of conflict, then, is the second stage of the process. And understand that this fearful chaos is a part of a scenario of conflict, something meaningful. So there's something going on in the world that explains why these horrible things are happening. I know it may sound odd, but imagine the relief that many of us feel when we have something strange happening to us physically, some symptom. We go to the doctor and they say, ah, well, I can tell you what's it? It's a tumor. Well, maybe horrible news, but in some odd kind of way it's comforting. At least now we know what it is. We have an explanation for that anomaly that had been driving us nuts even if it's something horrible we know now what we can do about it what medicine we can take war provides that kind of prescription it explains why bad things are happening explains who these en- evil enemies are explains why the world is happening the way it is happening it puts that chaos into a scenario of conflict in that Face of a hidden, hideous, and deeply threatening reality, the idea of war is comforting. Another person I interviewed, Terry Noble, who was a member of a Christian militia group, talked about his acceptance of the ideology of the Christian militia as an aha experience. He felt deeply uncertain and disappointed about the world. It was a kind of almost palpable experience until. He received this revelation and then like an epiphany that the world is at war. There's a great battle going on, and suddenly that simply gave him an enormous sense of comfort and relief that now he understood what was going on in a war. As Chris Hedges, the American journalist, put it, war is often a force that gives us meaning. The third stage in the war worldview is developing a sense of enemies. Now you may think that I've gotten all wrong, that first one has enemies and then one goes to war, but I'm not sure that's the case. It seems to me that <clears throat> there are times when it's obvious who's behind this evil things that happen, and we know who the enemies are. At times it's not. There's a sense inchoate sense of discord for which there's no obvious or Origin. At that time, you need a war. You need a sense that the world is at war. And you have to have enemies. You have to invent them if you don't have them. You have to see in some force, some reason for what is happening, some element that's behind the warfare. Because war would be inconceivable without enemies. It's that whole dichotomous sense of social order that requires an enemy. So if one senses that terrible things are happening in the world, one needs an idea of war to explain it. One needs an idea of enemy to make that war sensible. The way that war makes sense of chaos is by seeing social reality caught within a conflict between absolute opponents. These enemies respect, represent two ways of maintaining order and control in the chaotic war. One tends to clarity and the resolution of the disorder. That's our side. The other, the other guys, leads to more chaos and destruction. That is, indeed, they are indeed the source of that discord and destruction. Hence, the two sides in a conflict and war are never morally equal. There is always an ethical valence, an ethical weight on the side of one as opposed to the other. No one engaged in a battle thinks of both sides as equally right. Certainly not at the beginning of the conflict. Oh, yes, maybe later on, like in Hemingway's novel, when his protagonist realizes that uh, there is humanity on the enemy of both sides, any questions war itself, but this is a subtlety that is lost usually on the fervent soldiers in the outset of military confrontation for them, and more importantly for the, so- the the supporters behind them, because war is more often in the minds of the public than it is in the military professionals who are required to carry it out for the public who supports war it 's a matter of the good guys versus the bad guys of a way of defeating evil and bringing the world to justice, freedom, and peace. I think that any useful definition of war would have to include this ethical component. Perhaps the most basic way of thinking about war is simply that, the moral absolutism of social conflict. It's moral in that it involves a distinction between right and wrong, truth and untruth, religion and unreligion, good and bad. It's absolute in that it's totalizing in its perspective of the world and also totalizing in its sense of the nature of conflict. You can't have negotiation with absolute evil. It's social in that it's a perception of the world that's shared with others. It's a social sense of order. It's conflict conflict in that it balances these two perspectives of reality, pits them together in a way, an absolute way in which only one can triumph. A Buddhist monk in Sri Lanka once told me that he was at war with the government, his government in Sri Lanka, because they were trying to annihilate Buddhism. He said, look at a map of the world. He said, you will see that the religions of the world evenly spread all over the entire globe except, except, except for Sri Lankan Buddhism. It's only at one spot on the map, this tiny teardrop of an island of Sri Lanka south of the sub- South Asian subcontinent. And if it's gone here, it's gone forever. That sense of fighting for existence itself. Such threats to one's fundamental structure of human existence are occasions in which desperate minds sense, seek to make sense of confusion in an ordered, though extraordinary way. Warfare enters into the mind as a hopeful epiphany. It imagines enemies behind the chaos, enemies that can be engaged, conquered, destroyed. It allows them to manage, to control the confusion in which they are faced. The confrontation necessarily involves ultimate confrontation because it is about ultimate things, and the encounter may lead to death. Yet those who engage their minds in this way of thinking, in this war worldview, are spirited by the notion that behind even their personal lives, the sense of social order and meeting for which they struggled will survive. In a curious way, then, all images of warfare, and all of their awful encounters with chaos end with hope for peace. And in the picture of Guernica, the one image, the one section of it that strikes me perhaps the most is this one at the lower center part of the screen, where in this torn arm and a broken sword, one sees a flower. It's not clear whether the flower was there before or whether somehow it's emerging from the shards of battle but there is this flower and every image of warfare ends with a hope for peace if you come tomorrow night we will talk about the current war on terrorism and ask whether in the terms of which we've spoken this is war and what we can do about it Thank you very much.
1: We have time for questions. I know there's a, a microphone that is available, so if you want to raise your hands, we okay. can.
2: So. Uh, Thank you very much. You've spoken about war. Maybe you could give us a little bit of hint in uh, all of your, you know, readings and your experience with what might, one might refer to as the opposite in many philosophies and in science there's opposite rotations of molecules and things of that nature. So where does peace, is peace an end of war or is it actually just the opposite of war And therefore, we're really going about this the wrong way. Well, thank you for the question you're asking about peace. And um, as a teaser for the next two uh, lectures that I'm going to give, at the the end of the third lecture, I'm going to be talking about alternatives to war. But I'm going to be talking about it in that way. uh, Because it it seems to me uh, uh, that in the way that We've talked about it this evening. War is so endemic to the human imagination. It's so fundamental to the way we think. We can't imagine order without imagining disorder. We can't imagine the control of the world in which we live without control of the forces of chaos outside of us, and that's what the template of war is all about. So I don't think humans are capable of imagination about... Social consciousness, which is what war, what, what social order and war is all about, without, without the image of war. So we're, we're stuck with at least the images of war. Are we stuck with killing other people? Now, this is what I would like to probe in the third lecture, is whether we can think of, of, of ways of imagining uh, the, comp- the competition between order and disorder, the control of chaos, uh, in this metaphorical way that war so profil- profoundly provides us Without actually having to kill other people and that's what we'll be looking at in the third lecture I'm Just curious about one thing in your construct of the theory of war if the Mongol hordes are approaching and they intend to obliterate your city. And if you choose to stay and defend that city, granted you may create an ethos about that defense, but if you do it in the object sense of the game, where they would just as soon clobber a block rather than a human being, are you at war if you merely tried to defend your city rather than have it sacked, your women ravaged, I don't know, it's a good question, because one can imagine forms of military action that are powerful, forceful, in which people get killed, that are conducted for the reasons of defense, for justice, for ending great war, great violence, uh, through strategic acts uh, of military action. These are some of the things I'm going to be talking about in the third lecture, that are not totalizing in the way in which we've just talked about war, that don't require opponents to be regarded as, uh, satanic beings, as uh, aliens to be wiped off the face of the map, to be, uh, not just destroyed, but, in, uh, but, but tortured, uh, raped, their women were raped, their soldiers uh, violated physically in the kind of hideous ways that torture, that, of torture that that warfare often leads to. It seems to me these are acts of the imagination of a totalizing construct that one can do without in militarily defending uh, one's territory or protecting justice or removing uh, despots from power.
1: So it's possible to do justice in the theater of war?
2: Yes. Uh, it, it's, it's possible to do ju- justice through the use of military a- action. And I'm trying to make a distinction, and, and uh, you may think I'm uh, making it too fine, uh, between military action and warfare, because I, often the two go together. But I think that, necess- that need not necessarily be the case.
3: Um, I was going to ask a question, but I want to first comment on that question. Uh, I think I really object that the question was framed in terms of Mongols. I think it's a uh, literary tradition of the West, the Orientalism, which makes the Mongols being the rapers, the sackers. I think all wars, all battles, all fields, military might—they rape, they sack, they loot.
2: Yes, and if I can interrupt for a second, I, I was in Ulaanbaatar a couple of years ago, and I have to say they have a totally different view on the Mongols. <laughs> Being that's, Mongolians, that's not que- <laughs> they see them as pretty good guys.
3: That's not my question. No, my <laughs> question for, for you is following. Um, I came with the expectation that you're going to tell us that war has a special claim to religion, or religion has a special claim to war. But I think what I heard so far, is that what you ascribe war to? It's something more general. It's not just religion, but anything that make human being being divided. We versus them. Yes. Isn't religion, just one of those things that can.
2: Be? I, I think war is endemic to the human imagination. Now, why war is so particularly appealing to religion and religion to war? Ha! That's the subject of my third lecture. You know, you'll have to come back uh, on Thursday night for that discussion precisely. But what you say is correct. What I've tried to talk about tonight is the odd appeal of war, why war is so attractive to the human imagination at all levels, in in literature and in in our aspects of our cultural consciousness as well as our social and political affairs.
0: Can you comment on the gender differences on this uh, appeal of war? Because I have the feeling that Um, in this description, you are leaving out uh, the sensitivity of 50% of the population.
2: I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Can
1: you say that again?
0: Yeah, can you comment on the gender differences of this appeal or this um, um, need of war? Because I have the feeling that uh, you're leaving out 50% of the population.
2: Why why is war such a guy thing? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's a wonderful question. uh, and I, I thought of that in terms of the computer games, Counter Strike. I mean, here are these teenage boys. And we're not talking about, you know, I don't know, some traditional uh, Middle Eastern society. We're talking about kids from Cupertino and, uh, well, you probably don't know where that is, but <laughs> San Jose and uh, uh, um, Glendale and places that are uh, uh, terribly uh, quintessentially modern America. Um, war tends to be a guy thing in my previous book on terrorism I looked at that question with regard to acts of terrorism which tend to be almost exclusively, again, guy things in fact, the word guy etymologically comes from a terrorist you know where the word comes from? Guy Fawkes, that's right And the gunpowder plot. He was trying to blow up the British Parliament and the King because he thought that they had excluded Catholics from positions of influence in the British, in the uh, English society and and the government. So, guys have always been associated with kind of rogue uh, uh, and militant uh, activists. But why is that the case? I simply puzzled over that in my, my. previous book, and, and in addition to, the, you know, what what all women know is that an evil hormone of testosterone, uh, and all Freudians know to be uh, uh, male violence is uh, only slightly sublimated sexual urges, I think there's a more mundane kind of social explanation, and that is, in, in most societies, men expect that they will have, for right or wrong, positions of social responsibility. And so when things fall apart in the social world, men tend to internalize it, become, be, tend to be humiliated, sense, experience this as humiliation, as insult. You see this in the response to the Danish cartoons all over Europe, all over the world, where the response is that we feel humiliated, we feel insulted by this. It's not just that there's, you know, it's obscene in some way. They take it personally and and i think in some ways men tend to internalize this public humiliation more because they feel rightly or wrongly that they are to be stewards of public space now how this whether this goes very far in explaining uh, you know 14 year old boys uh, in computer games being attracted to violence uh, i'm not sure maybe we then have to retreat to testosterone and freud
3: Down here okay. just redu- reduce the uh, universe, or at least
2: diminish the universe of uh, polarizing aggressive uh, uh, instincts to the male part of the population. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can reduce it further uh, culturally. are you asserting that what you're describing are tendencies that are universal in human nature? Or are they, in fact, the product of culture? Uh, and are there, therefore, cultures which I, I assume anthropologists have looked at this, and I know they have, um, are there cultures in which the, the phenomena you describe are, are not characteristic at all of the culture? It's an interesting question. Is, you, is war ubiquitous to every culture? And certainly conflict is ubiquitous. It's a part of nature. And it's, you're absolutely right that in some cultures, uh, I don't know if, fellow professor at Berkeley, when the years that I taught there, Laura Nader, whose brother is more famous or infamous depending on your political position, but Laura used to teach a course on the anthropology of of law in which she looked at cultures that dealt with conflict differently and aimed not at punishing but at trying to reconcile when there was a breach uh, within the social fabric. But that's within the social fabric. to My impression was some of the same cultures then looking at their competition with other tribes or other communities would often enter into states of war. Do I know that war is ubiquitous to every human society? No. But I have an eerie suspicion that it is, that it is simply because, for reasons which which I've I've suggested, that it's a way of managing disorder, a way of managing the chaos that is outside of one's sphere of influence. It's like the classic Islamic image. I know it's not Quranic, but but it's applied often to the Quranic vision of the world or the war, Of Islam and the world of harb, the Dar al Harb, the war of warfare that's outside, the the unknown world, the chaotic world. This is what the Mahabharata is talking about, the confusion that needs to be managed, and it's managed through war. One goes to war with a chaotic, with chaos, and conquers it in that in that way. And I suspect that, I suspect that, but I don't know that to be the case. That that is almost endemic to the human imagination. No. I'm saying it always comes in tandem. Uh, it seems to me that civilization, cosmopolitan human nature, and, and the sense of order exists precisely because it's thought to be in tandem with disorder. So war plays a functional role. Now, certainly images of war play the functional role, and that's the argument I want to make in the third lecture, that although, although the, the, the you you. We may, as humans, need to have these kinds of images in order to function. In order to think of civilized society, you have to think of uncivilized society. I mean, that's what war is. It's everything about normal civil order. It's the flip side of it. Just totally opposite. It's not a little bit different. It's totally different. It is absolutely the opposite. So it enables us to think of ordered society by putting chaos into a category of disordered society, which is to say war. And so I, I suspect it will always play that functional role, and that's not necessarily bad, as long as we can avoid killing people in the process. That's the unfortunate part when this template becomes placed on real social conflict and real humans, not just satanic images, are destroyed. One or
1: two more
4: questions. There's one there.
3: But but why do we have to kill and torture? could we not get all the benefits of war just without going that far?
2: I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Why do we have to kill, kill the
4: benefits of war without going that
2: far? Yes, I think so. I mean, that's, again, uh, what I, uh, I'm i enticing you to come to the third lecture, but, the, but, uh, but I want to kind of ruminate about that possibility, whether you can get the benefits of the imagination of war without actually having to kill people. Um, I, I'd like to think that that is... I'd like to think that that is, that is possible, although, as I said, you can see how the idea of war insinuates itself to, to situations of social disruption, and somehow it's m- even more satisfying when there is a real person, a real enemy out there that can be conquered and destroyed. Uh, you know, I got involved in this whole business of studying um, religious violence um, Actually, when Paul Sigmund and I first uh, met each other uh, 20 years ago, Paul, yikes, uh, at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. In my case, I had lived in India for a number of times, the, uh, for a number of years, and the, the Sikhs had developed this awful spiral of violence with the Indian government. And I, I couldn't understand why. I mean, I love Sikhs. They're wonderful people, affable, friendly. Why was this happening? So I looked at the speeches of Sant general Singh Bindranwali, the leader of the movement, and, and I expected to find uh, a wily politician who was using religion, but I found just the opposite. I found a, rel- a religious person, like, like a country parson, who was spoken in, in the metaphors and the language of the religious history of the Sikhs, but then used that language as the template of understanding to make sense Of the total social and political scene, so in a eerie kind of way, instead of politics, instead of religion being politicized, it was a matter of politics being religionized. He was seeing the social and political world through religious eyes, and and that's uh, and it was a satisfying way of making sense out of why bad things seemed to be happening to the Sikhs, why they weren't being treated with respect. And again, this word respect, humiliation. Insult, most powerful emotion in the human experience. I mean, nothing provokes, provokes violence or warfare more than the sense of being dissed in the language of rap music, of being disrespected, of not being regarded as a, as a full human, as, as a person you think you should be. And in their mind, it all made sense because through this template of war, and then this fueled an awful movement of warfare with uh, tens of thousands of people killed over ten years, including, culminating with the assassination of Indira Gandhi, the Prime Minister of India, in and, and a war that ultimately was not so much defeated as it just kind of burned itself out, it kind of fizzled itself out. And a couple of years ago, I went back to one of those villages in the Punjab where all the young men had had volunteered as soldiers, and I talked with some of their relatives, and I said, what happened? And they said, well, it's, you know, it's, the, it's over now, it's over. <laughs> I said, well, what about those young men who, you know, whose lives were lost? And he says, they just looked at me and said, well, that's what happens in history. Sometimes we're called to go to war, and we celebrate their lives. And then life goes on. Odd, yet
4: it's what war does. Yes. If I, if I understand... Uh, um your premise or your theory on war, you're, you're separating it out from the, the military action of war. Yes. And it,
2: I'm talking about the idea of war, yeah. construct of war in the mind.
4: But it almost sounds like you're saying it's a little bit more of an existential instinct or a psychological need that to bring order, meaning, chaos. Is that close to being fair? That it's more of a, a base level, it sounds like, then. Yes, and since I'm not a
2: psychologist but a sociologist, it's a kind of a social psychological const- construct. It's a social... So so do you think there
4: might be any parallel to like a flight or fight kind of instinct or or reaction, whether that's learned or socially learned? And I'd like you to respond to that. And therefore, is there any, quote, just place for war, if you even accept my first presupposition there? And then lastly, uh, the question of God, uh, and maybe this is going to be lecture three, is there, Might are you implying that maybe the God appeal is that, God language brings black and white and order and meaning or might you also be hinting at that there might be something instinctual about what God has created in humans to have this instinct of order or control
2: well you'll have to come in on Thursday night but more the, more the first I mean I see an eerie resemblance between the, 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 the social template of war and the social template of religion in some ways they, they work in an interesting way very similar to each other and, and it's why that there is this unnatural natural correspondence between religion and, and, and war. But to respond to the first part of your question, the biological connection, I, I don't know. I'm not a biologist. But I, I see it so compelling simply in terms of the way in which humans, we as humans, need to make sense of our lives. I mean, after all, we live in a terribly chaotic situation in a perilous world where much of what we take to be normal reality makes no sense. The constructs of time and space, which any little kid who says, where's the beginning of time? Or where does, you know, space in the universe, we can't even answer those questions. And yet that's the way in which we organize our lives. We, you know, take our lives to be, you know, normal. And yet we know we, we will die. We know that we were, <laughs> where were we before we were born? We, we have these crowded, terrible elements at the edge of our reality, of our consciousness that that, that it just as normal humans we have to make sense of in order to to go on, in order to make this reality uh, uh, coherent, in order to simply be comfortable with this reality. We have to put that chaos into place, and so we have to imagine a container for chaos, and in some ways war does that. Religion does that in a different way, and and in some ways a surprisingly similar way, but war also does that. It it, is a container for chaos that allows us to, to do what we do.
1: Our reality is we have one more question.
5: (laughs) Uh, Could the warring imagination be spilling over into other areas of human engagement? I'm thinking about the relationship of the species to the environment.
2: What do you have in mind? Uh, Say, I don't quite understand. Well, well, (laughs)
5: if we're creating a set of reinforcing mythologies and ideologies to manage whatever it is we're trying to in the act of conquering chaos or ordering the world um, it would seem to me that uh... there's been a a, a a sea change in the last thousand years the way the human race relates to the environment which for a long time could support or absorb uh... those constructs and and how we were acting out this uh, drama but in recent times it would seem to me that uh... the environment is just as much something to be uh... dominated and 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 construed at our will as as mm-hmm. as part of that whole hmm. i don't know
2: I... well, it 's no, It's an interesting thought that... at war with nature yeah at war with nature i mean there's certainly it's it's true there have been moments in human history where uh, one is they. As a human society, we've taken a more aggressive role towards nature and a more friendly war, uh, role towards nature in some ways. It's an interesting insight that, that we have, in a sense, been at war with nature at, at different times in our social history.
1: Join me in thanking Professor Juergens And I encourage you to come back tomorrow night, 8 p.m., here in Makash 50. (laughs) Thank
4: Thank you.
1: you.